Welcome to the Restaurant Boiler Room, Season 2, Episode 6. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in the Boiler Room, we infuse a recent webinar conversation with Alan Canner, who specializes as an attorney in business interruption insurance, the next shoe to drop post-COVID-19. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk. Deliver to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchisors on a monthly basis. Feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the Boiler Room. Well, thank you guys, you know, for joining. Thanks for the uh, initial thing here. We'll we'll get going in like two or three minutes. I just before I get started, I'll just say a couple of things. Thank you guys, those of you who attended the last webinar that we did. It was two weeks ago. If you didn't make it and you're on this call on this webinar, drop me an email. I was just kind of wrapping on about uh, what I think is going to happen. What's the current M and A market look like from both the franchise M and A and real estate M and A perspective, and what I think it'll happen in the next three, six, nine, and twelve months. And so it was pretty well attended and folks liked it. If you want a copy of it, all you got to do is holler. You can also, you can go to our website, which is www.unbridledcapital.com. Up on the top right there, there's going to be a yellow box or a yellow button. You can hit that button and you can subscribe or join our database. And, you know, I do webinars now every two weeks. It's a lot of work. I love it though. I do podcasts, do videos. Obviously our main business is M&A work. So we help franchisees and franchisors sell and finance their businesses and to that extent, we can get to know you and put you on our database so that you can see some of the deal flow that we do. That's cool too. And also, once you're on the database, you can reach out to questions and ask questions of us anytime. We have two upcoming webinars after today, and I'll mention those real quickly. I'm pretty excited about both of them. On Tuesday, May the 19th at 2 o'clock Eastern time, we're going to have Monroe Moxnesberg, MMB. It's a law firm out of Minneapolis that does almost exclusively uh, franchise, you know, M&A and franchise matters as their practice goes. Dennis Monroe is a stalwart in the industry that you know, and so he's been around and writes articles all over the place. So uh, Tim Ring of, of MMB is going to come on with me and talk about the legal, the tax, and the you know the accounting and compliance features of the PPP forgiveness program, which I know is going to be important to everybody, right? You're going to want to know how to get the money that you've borrowed forgiven as expeditiously as possible with as little interference with the government or banks. So please stay tuned for that. I expect that's going to be great. And on Tuesday, June the 2nd at 2 p.m. Eastern time, I've got John Hamburger of the Franchise Times. And so John's the president of the Franchise Times. John's, uh, again, been in the business a long time. We're honored to have him come aboard. And he's going to be talking with me about the lending market and what that looks like as of June 2nd. And then what it's supposed to look like, we think, in our opinion, over the next six to nine to 12 months. You can't get many lenders. Some of you lenders are listening to this, but you can't get lenders to give a lot of advice because of compliance reasons, right? So John and I become the de facto lenders because we talk to lenders all the time. So that ought to be a good a good presentation. Today, I'm honored to be here with Alan. And let me tell you just a little bit. We all pay for insurance, right? I mean, I pay for insurance. You pay for insurance. We pay for insurance uh, for our cars, our our health, our, we pay for insurance in, in case we have a lightning strike in our house or a flood in our front porch or, you know, whether we get a heart attack. I mean, our businesses as well. And just like you all, most of you who are franchisees have business insurance. I do too. And I have a rider on my insurance that has business interruption. And uh, the whole idea with insurance is you pay for it faithfully year after year. So that when a tragedy or problem happens, you can approach your insurer and produce a claim. And I've been denied my claim. I went to Travelers Insurance and I asked them 
And they said, well, viruses aren't covered. And of course, I thought to myself, well, this isn't a, a virus. This is a government shutdown. But through this process, I just got to know Alan. Alan was referred to me through a, a, a pizza franchisee who's a very good friend of mine, a well-connected, awesome guy. And he told me, he said, listen, you've got to talk with Alan. He's the best in the business at commercial litigation and business interruption. And so I said, okay, so here we are with, with Alan and he's Harvard trained. He's done all kinds of crazy assignments and work with Katrina and Three Mile Island and Superstorm Sandy and all these catastrophes and all these things where businesses were interrupted. So he's got great experience here. And I, you know, you know me, I like to talk, but in this particular narrow area of the world, I don't know a whole lot. So I'm going to do mostly listening once I introduce Alan and let him kind of talk. As you see over to the right, if you want to ask any questions along the way, please feel free to hammer them out and we'll, uh, we'll keep an eye on them and, and make sure they get answered either during the, the webinar or afterwards. And then lastly, I just say, man, I don't, I don't make any money for doing this. This is a service that I'm providing to you, the franchisee. That's all this is, right? Certainly, I hope you look at me and say, this guy's an expert. So when it's time to sell or finance my company, come to Rick and Unbridled Capital. But there's nothing in this for me except for really a pure, pure heart to help you all like myself to explain and understand if there is for you personally a way to recover funds as part of this coronavirus issue. And the last thing I'll say is I'm really happy that, that Alan has uh, agreed to everyone who's on the call, I guess, to do a policy review for free for them. Now, you know, if you decide to take him up on that and his expertise, and he comes back to you and says, ah, this is something that you have a claim here. You know, your policy is legitimate or there's a reasonable doubt here and I'm willing to take it. He's going to, you know, propose fees and, and success fees. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly how his fees work, but the point is you have now have a, someone who's very experienced, well-recommended, very well-trained, who's here to not only provide information for you, but also to give your policy a look if you're interested in doing so. And I thought that's pretty cool and that's pretty valuable. So thank you to Alan. And I'm gonna share the screen now if that's okay and, and see if we can just get rocking and rolling. Alan, can you see the screen okay? Yeah, fine. Okay. Yeah, all right, rock and roll. So you know me, you know, Rick Ormsby on Bridal Capital and I'll just uh, kind of uh, kick it off to Alan. You mind doing a quick uh, introduction of yourself, Alan? Sure. I've been at this 40 years. Uh, I do environmental commercial litigation. I do insurance coverage, first party insurance. I handle first party cases after Three Mile Island, handle first party cases after Katrina, I, Superstorm Sandy, and you know, learned a lot. Obviously, I've done first party cases when there wasn't a disaster, but there's some big differences that you learn in how to handle a post-disaster situation. You're in New Orleans bound, right? That's what you call home, correct? Yes, it is. Uh, but we practice all over the country. Sure. Well, I mean, I, this is really, you know, I'll jump in and kind of, you know, maybe say a thing or two or ask a question like if a If you need more information about me, you can call my mother. Check <laughs> <laughs> it all. Yeah, that's usually, if a mother or sister will say all the bad stuff though, right? So you, exactly. you know, you don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, too funny. You know, we're, we're going to talk about the issue at hand, right? Alan's going to address that first. And then the, the major question to people who are on this call is, why does it matter to you? What do you stand to gain by listening to this other than just another darn webinar that people are just talking heads? So we hope to pump value into this conversation. The third is, you know, Alan's going to talk a little bit about the insurance counter argument, right? How they're going to push back and try to prevent a claim from occurring. And then he's going to go into a little bit of the technicalities of policy details and definitions and then give you kind of a maybe a landscape view of what what you can do from here 
you know, I, I want to be quick to say that, you know, that, that it is probable that many of you don't have a legitimate claim, right? It is probable. But the point of this webinar is to educate you and to get this issue in front of you so that you can get a reliable and professional opinion to see whether you do have a claim because otherwise what's going to happen? You're going to call your insurance broker and what are they going to say a hundred times out of a hundred? It ain't covered, right? That's what they're going to say. They're all going to say that. And so that's the point of today. But I want to be clear that not everyone's going to have a claim, but I want to pretend like neither myself nor Alan feel like that's the case. Alan, the floor is yours, my friend. Go for it. As I suggested earlier, there's a big difference in the way insurance companies handle claims after a mass disaster versus business as usual. A lot of people have good experiences. Maybe their CFO filed a claim a few years ago after after something was damaged and they got paid and they tend to trust the insurance industry. I can tell you that in virtually all of these disasters, the insurance industry changes here more than I've ever seen before, simply because of the potential level of exposure that you're talking about. This kind of switch in business as usual was well documented after Superstorm Sanity, Congress had a committee look at the issue. So it's not a normal situation. Virtually everybody I know has gotten their claims denied. Denial of a claim doesn't mean anything, or, or they haven't looked or the claim was denied. Often you can go back to the insurer. They have a continuing duty to investigate. We sent some letters to people. In at least one case, about a million dollars of coverage suddenly came out that they agreed to. I think there's more that's owed there, but at least you kind of turned a denial around and got it reinvestigated. Generally, if you do get denied, your next recourse is to go to court and file a declaratory judgment action to get your interpretation of the policy covered. We're also hearing in the media about all these class actions being filed and uh, multi-district litigation and whatnot. Uh, generally, for the policyholder, that's bad news. Class actions are not going to resolve your problem. My favored modus operandi in these cases is to just work directly with the insurer try to get my guy or gal everything they're entitled to at the front end quickly, discreetly, and move on. Class actions will create a huge bottleneck on the legal system, I think, which may end up delaying a lot of people's claims. In addition, when somebody files a class action, they may not do it wisely in the sense that they may help the insurer say, well, there's a class action, so my duty to investigate went away and suddenly your bad faith claim gets ruined. I don't encourage people to file for bad faith or punitive damages in general, get your money back and get back to business. But it is a stick that you have to get a fair settlement is the fact that they're at risk for that. Hate to have that go away. I've seen many policies have a valid claim even after people have had looked at it. In your space, I have seen a lot of franchisees. I've, I've got a a bunch of clients, a lot of them have extended restaurant endorsement coverage. And there's a little provision in there about food poisoning. And food poisoning is defined in part as a communicable disease. That gives you a hook for coverage. Now, most of those policies do not come with a virus exclusion. Some do. But what's the law going to say? You, you, you paid extra money for communicable disease coverage, including viruses, that language about a, a virus exclusion may get kicked out by the courts. Also, I've seen some virus exclusions 
that aren't really that good and I think are going to fall for various reasons that I'm happy to get into. And, you know, not everybody will be able to collect. That's just the realities. But the truth is everybody's fighting for their businesses right now. Everybody I know tried to get PPP money, you know, and many of them were successful. That's helpful. This could potentially be helpful as well. One of the great things about business interruption insurance is that you've got coverage in what's called the period of restoration. You're entitled to all the income you would have had, but for the covered incidents, that's what business interruption generally protects. There are different definitions of business interruption in your policy. And some people who get extended coverage or expanded coverage or the restaurant endorsement coverage will find that they've got even longer period of restoration. I've seen a number of policies, 365 days of coverage. For that period of restoration, you're also entitled to extra expense money. The extra expense money is going to help you get back to normal. Since we don't know what the new normal is really going to look like, that money, I think, becomes all the more important to people. Some people also have uh, what's called contingent business interruption. That's going to help with supply chains. I heard today that some of the meat processors are now having issues you know, with their facilities. So there may be supply chain problems that sort of follow on the closure problems as we try to get into a period of recovery in this country and restoration, as they say, in the insurance industry. And rule number one, I just want to say one last thing about this. It's the policy. You got to read the policy. And a lot of times the policies are are just a puzzle. You know, you get a definition of business of covered cause of losses. Then you get another part like, you know, 300 declarations away that says, oh, covered cause of losses also includes a communicable disease. And so it, it really is a lot of like CSI as you go through these policies. And, I, you know, I, I, I kind of enjoy doing that. Uh, it's it's fun because I think they write these policies this way to discourage people from making claims. There's a lot of policies out there. According to industry statistics, potentially billions and hundreds of billions of dollars are at stake with whether businesses without the virus exclusion, but with business interruption, if all of those people recover, the number should be in the billions. I'm not trying to give anybody legal advice here today. I'm trying to give you the lay of the land. But when the time comes, you've got to look at the policy. You've got to have an experienced professional read the policy for you, not your CFO, not your broker not your accountant, not the lawyer often who does your regular business work, because this is a once in a lifetime situation. And we've been able to find a lot of relief for people who, who haven't had it. And in other cases, we moved on and, you know, putting cases in suit as we go. What I find interesting is, is to give the analogy, Alan, of, of, of maybe the PPP loan process, right? So what, when I got out of this slide, when we first started talking about it was, you start hearing, everyone started to hear this idea about class action lawsuits coming out. And it would be as if the franchisees on the phone were waiting to submit their PPP money together as one big group to Wells Fargo, whatever bank it would be, to get their loan approved, right, together as a group. Well, no one did that. Everyone was aware that there's only so much money to be had and time was of the essence. And so a lot of our clients pivoted to different types of banks, community banks, regional banks to get their PPP money quickly because they knew it was going to run out and they knew that they could get the money quickly and efficiently and get it 
in a different way. And maybe that's kind of a silly sort of analogy to what you're describing. If you sit around waiting for a class action lawsuit to happen, you're likely to do what happened when I was buying internet stocks in 2001 and they went to zero, right? You sat there in a group of 5,000 shareholders and ended up with a penny at the end of it, as opposed to going in more proactively before, you know, and not part of the class action lawsuit potentially and trying to to fight for, for your own particular individual case. I sound like an attorney. I'm not, obviously, but (laughs) no, it's, I mean, the truth is one class actions are group discounts of the highest order. Sometimes people do only get pennies on the dollar. I mean, sometimes I ran a class action for police officers all over the country for bulletproof vests. We got, got them a hundred cents on the dollar. But the thing is the business person wants to make their own decision. And I've talked to a lot of guys. They said, look, if you can give me 60 cents on the dollar in 30 days, that's what I want to do. I don't want, you know, and you don't really want a lawyer you've never met making a decision about whether to settle at 10 cents on the dollar or drag it out for 20 years to get a hope that you have 50-50 shot at 100 cents on the dollar. One of the things about having personalized representation is it gives you the ability to take your asset and monetize it in the best way possible. And I, I think, why does it matter to you? Because it's money and you know, money, money matters right now. Uh, I don't mean to be crass about it, but you know, the industry is going through a rough time. Most of the closure orders really, I mean, lots of businesses were hammered, but none worse than, you know, restaurants, at least without drive-throughs. Many, many people I find have bought extended restaurant protection and coverage. I think that that means that as a class, the restaurant tours are going to do better than other segments of society. So if you've had a bad experience with a policy because you also have a deep car dealership, you're going to have a different type of policy if you did anything above the bare minimum. It's called restaurant endorsement. Sometimes one policy is called reputation protection. <laughs> if you looked at the deck sheet, you'd say, well, it's not a reputation problem. You know, I got nothing there. So I would say as a class in America of all the businesses that I've seen, restaurants are, and some hotels, they have a hospitality endorsement that's similar to that. What they usually give you is communicable disease coverage. Now, for example, I just looked at a policy yesterday from New York. There is a virus exclusion, but it specifically says does not apply to any coverages under food contamination, which we talked about earlier is communicable disease. The amounts can be substantial under the policy. I mean, there are some policies. I, I have a fellow who's got a law firm, you know, 500000 a month in revenues where he's advertising guys. All he had was 40000 in extra expense, no business interruption coverage. I mean, all right, it's your choice. But we have cases where people have been able, you know, because of the levels of coverage under the policies, often in the tens of millions, hundreds of millions, I have a couple of medical facilities that are in the billions. So there can be a lot of money out there. Then it's your claim you want to manage it. You go through court. It could take you two to three years. And that's what I would typically tell a client. But now you've got this overlay of class actions. A lot of times we use the declaratory judgment action that I mentioned earlier to get the other side's attention. Judge rules. Yeah, of course, you can't read it like that or you should read it the way, you know, Mr. Catter says to read it. And once you get some good law like that, they got to go back to the table. They will go back to the table. Right now, I think what a lot of the insurance industry is doing is spending their time telling almost everybody no and lobbying Congress to try to get a bailout on some of this money. 
That's not all bad news for you as a policyholder. The bad, I mean, obviously it's bad news. You're getting stonewalled, but they realize they have to pay. They just want to get some federal dollars on, on that. And possibly even without the restaurant endorsement, if you have terrorism coverage, they may try to funnel some of it through terrorism. These are all proposals that are up in the air right now. And I don't know where it comes out, but I tend to think that more of a global solution would come in. Maybe the restaurants with the endorsement, they, they've been pretty high profile. They've, you know, they've had a chance to meet with the president. So that may be the first part of this. So there's a lot going on politically, two other things to think about, which state you're in. And by the way, if you own an LLC, and I think the fellow next week can corroborate this, you can file wherever the members of the LLC live. You got to think about where you're going to file your case, both in terms of the speed of getting it, you know, resolved. And how also, do you think, Alan, yeah. how do you think about that? I mean, give us a little bit of a shed a little bit of light on on the states for us without maybe being too political. I, you know, a lot of people on this call have restaurants and operations in 10 or 12, 15 states, as an example. You know what I mean? So maybe that's an idea to expound upon. I think Florida has good law. I think New York has good law. Pennsylvania has very good law. And they recently had a Supreme Court decision. It wasn't precisely an insurance case. It was about the governor's power to do the lockdown. But the way they discussed it was very, very favorable for coverage in Pennsylvania. California has good law. The other variable in that, I mean, I'm I'm mentioning a couple of states, but on the other hand, New Jersey has very good law also, but New Jersey legislature, New York legislature, Florida legislature, Louisiana legislature, Illinois legislature are in the process of trying to pass laws that will basically make the virus exclusion not apply. So those states could be dynamic. After that, you've got the state insurance commissioners who we rarely know who they are, except they come around for political contribution. But the insurance commissioners are out there they're seeing an opportunity, I know in New York, California, to find out why people aren't getting paid. So they're going to start having market conduct exams, which is going to raise the pressure in certain places. So you got you to look at this nationally. In addition to the insurance commissioners, the state's attorneys generals are starting to issue opinions, legal opinions. They're not binding, but they're supposed to influence courts about how these policies should be construed. And the last word out of the White House was that the president had asked William Barr, you know, there was that famous press conference where he talked about business interruption to offer a legal opinion about coverage in these cases, which I think would create a lot of momentum and credibility and maybe move things along, but still not change the basic idea that trying to work it out one-on-one with the insurance company, they know these risks are moving as well. They don't necessarily want to end up in litigation, if at all possible, but all of these become leverage to getting a deal done sooner rather than than later. And you've got to be in that loop, I think, to really see how it plays out and what the best circumstances for you. The insurance industry has pushed back vigorously in, after mass disasters. I forgot to mention 9-11, You know, a lot of people in transportation and hospitality, because there was a slowdown in travel, had argued that they had coverage because of the physical damage to the Twin Towers. The courts didn't like that argument, and they were were fairly successful, and they've come out of the box here on no physical damage and virus exclusion. A couple things. Some policies say direct physical loss, 
Uh, that's what they're relying upon in 9-11 and the physical damage issue. But some policies say loss of use as well, or loss of use. In other words, if there's contamination or suspected contamination in your building and you can't use it, or if a government authority basically says you can't use it, there isn't access to it, that some courts have said that's the same as physical damage for purposes of coverage. And that's really all you need. So that in a number of states, that is not a major hurdle. It is not an insignificant one, but depending on the law in that jurisdiction, I can give you a pretty good idea of what your odds are. Virus exclusion. Question is, what is the virus exclusion? There's a lot of, uh, it came out after SARS in 2004. Before that, they were using something for fungi and microbes. The court said we're not broad enough. By the way, I still have some policies today from people, including my own. For my business, it says, you know, we don't cover fungi, wet rot, dry rot, microbes. I feel pretty confident the courts are not going to enforce that as a virus exclusion. With respect to the virus exclusion that came in after SARS, a lot of what the industry was saying is that they were not excluding pandemics and associated civil authority losses. So there is some industry-related information that could help tear down the virus exclusion. Though right now, if I had to pick the best cases, I would still prefer a case with no virus exclusion. But the industry works with something called ISO, the insurance people, and they do some standardized forms. And when those forms get filed with the states, there's information provided about the meaning of those forms. And that often gets used in litigation as well, usually by a policyholder to say, you didn't intend to go this far. And there's stuff that's outside of your contract that the courts have recognized. And one of them is, you know, reasonable expectation tests. What did you reasonably expect? That the virus exclusion was would handle civil shutdown of your business? Probably not. Uh, so that may be another way of getting at the same end, in, just depending on the marketplace. I wanted to mention TRIA fund. That's the terrorism fund. It's over $100 billion. Actually, there'll be a line where you've contributed to it on your policy for a number of years there. So it's gotten grown up to be like $100 billion. Some people in industry are saying, well, why don't we call this terrorism situation and we can pull that $100 billion and get that into the system? The argument the insurance industry is making is we are a really responsible way of distributing another tranche of money because you know, the people who work with us are people who are risk adverse and you know, there's no moral hazard type stuff. I don't know where they're going to go, but you, you need to keep an eye on that because it may affect your coverage. That's great. Yeah. I heard it depends on what's in your policy. I heard it depends on what's in your state and what the statutes have been in the state and what's already been adjudicated in your state. Just a quick question as I just kind of think about this. I mean, how many insurance providers are we typically talking about? Is there, I mean, there's couple hundred people on this call. Are there going to be a couple hundred different types of insurance policies? Or are you typically seeing you know, six or seven major providers and a lot of the language consistent across the same providers in different industries? Or if I'm a Taco Bell franchisee who has traveler's insurance in New Jersey, am I likely to have similar language in my policy down in Louisiana? I mean, there may be just some thoughts on that. Yes. I've actually seen scores of insurance companies. They're out there, but 
you know, Lloyd's, they have a restaurant endorsement that is very similar to Allianz's restaurant endorsement, which is very similar to anywhere in the country as a practical matter. Some states have little variations on what the language has to has to say, but I would guess that every restaurateur or franchisee that I've am representing has a restaurant exclusion language in their policy. Uh, that's probably the only thing the broker knows. It's like, oh, you're in the restaurant business. Here's an endorsement for you. But it could provide a lot of help. That's not to say you're not entitled to coverage. If you don't have a virus exclusion and you have business income, you're probably okay. And then the question is how to maximize it. I mean, part of the art of insurance is making sure that you put the money in the right place. So is this going to be egress loss? Is going to be civil authority loss? And so you can maximize recovery based on how you articulate the damages and which category they fit in as well. But in general, I would think everybody on this call, if they're all in the uh, franchisees business and restaurants, they would have probably been offered that by at least an agent who wanted to make the extra commission off of it. So it's out there. The industry is denying that they have to pay under that provision. We have one insurer who's agreeing to pay, and we're just fighting about what the limits are, a uh, million or 10 million, and that's a big fight. But still, it's they're just digging in, I don't know, either hoping that people get desperate and want to take less. Uh, I don't know. But it's crazy. Like in Louisiana, you're supposed to adjust the claim within 30 days. By adjust the claim, you have to look at the coverage, you have to look at the facts, and the responsibilities on the adjuster who works for the insurance company to get that done in a timely fashion. You know, I don't see people making those deadlines around the country. Yeah. Well, maybe, uh, yeah, I appreciate this. A little, any advice on policy details and definitions? Obviously, I, I don't, these aren't words that I hear about a lot, civil authority and law ordinances and extra expense coverages. You, you do this all the time, but what, what do some of these things mean? Okay, the first thing is, it's really true. Appearances can be deceiving. The amount of coverage you have is more than the sum of the sentences on a deck page. By the way, <laughs> I, always, I always tell people, if you're going to send me your policy, send me every policy you have associated with your business. I have one client who's going to get paid. They sent me their uh, general liability and their property uh, policies. I said, well, you have anything else? I said, oh, we have some pollution coverage. I said, well, send it along. $15 million because they define pollution as including a virus in that policy. Hmm. You know, but who would have thought it, right? Yeah. You see the word virus exclusion and you just give up. Usually if your broker or you, you go to an insurance company, they will give you a quote. They'll take it out of context. It's very annoying on these denial letters. They'll give you the language of the virus exclusion and of the physical damage, the two things we talked about earlier. But you have to read the policy as a whole. And there are other things like the restaurant endorsement that arguably qualifies what the virus exclusion applies to and what physical damage means. Because think about it. If you have food poisoning, they call communicable disease is covered under a broad coverage for food contamination. Well, most people would look at food contamination and say, okay, that's not my problem here. The government shut me down, so I probably don't have insurance. But if you dig into it, you see that food contamination has like multiple definitions, one of which has always been, in my experience, a communicable disease coverage. It's not 
actual communicable disease. It's usually the actual or threat of communicable disease. And that's what we were dealing with here in this country is the threat of, and that's why the, everybody was shut down. But guess what? Once you accept that, then the policy no longer is about just physical damage because you've got the threat language. So these policies have to be read as a whole. Most everybody here has looked at the declarations page because that tells you what you have to pay for your premium. And it should list everything in your policy. And then you have coverages. Some people have standalone business interruption policies. There are some standalone restaurant coverage policies. But generally, you have either property or commercial general liability, either or both of which could have business interruption added to the coverages. So but that's what we mean by coverages. Exclusions are things that are not covered. So you generally start from the proposition with respect to business income loss. Everything, it's all risk. Everything is covered except what is specifically excluded. Now, what courts tell you is the coverage has to be liberally interpreted. Any ambiguity has to be construed in favor of coverage. Exclusions are narrowly interpreted. That, so when it says virus exclusion, it has to be narrowly interpreted. Arguably, there's an ambiguity with the fact that you, you have communicable disease coverage. And then there's something called endorsements, and that's extra coverage. And that's where you'll typically see things like the restaurant industry endorsements. Oddly, the insurers sometimes mix exclusions in with the endorsements and make the policy worse. So you really have to look, you have to read every page of the policy. You're constantly going back and forth. Definitions are changed. I have, I have one case where the language of the policy says actual but not suspected contamination, right? That seems pretty straightforward. And the client got a letter saying, did you do any testing that you can, you can show that there was actual contamination there, right? Like anybody was thinking to do that. They were just cleaning. <laughs> but sure enough, if you go deeper in the policy, there is a section that says definitions. And the definition of contamination is actual or suspected. And so suddenly the definition trumps the scary language up front, and there's, there's a pathway to coverage there. Deductibles, limits, sublimits, these are important. Usually only one deductible applies. Oh, by the way, if you have a business interruption loss and you get PPP money or any kind of FEMA or grant that emerges down the road, that is not considered business income. It's not an offset that benefits the insurance industry. So if you feel like, oh, I got PPP, you know, that's going to come out of the insurance recovery. So don't believe that. You can get both, you get your loss of income. Generally, PPP is not being treated as income, but as, as a government grant program. We had a lot of those issues after Katrina and in Superstorm Sandy. Now, it is possible that a judge could go the other way on that, but I haven't seen it yet. And I would not not pursue a policy claim simply because you think the PPP might be an offset. Deductibles, there's usually a deductible, yeah. you got like a, a, a $10 million policy, there may be a fifty to 500000 deductible. However, the rule is generally that the highest, you, they only get to give you one deductible. So if, you get, if you're pulling civil authority coverage for $5 million, ingress, egress for $5 million, only one deductible will apply, usually the highest. Limits, sublists of coverage, as they'll say, it's a $10 million policy, but I'll give you a million for communicable disease. 
okay, does that mean that's all you get? If you, what if you got 5 million in civil authority? I would argue you get the six. Now, what if you've got additional monies? So you're kind of working within the limits and sublimits of the policy. And there, there's a lot of ambiguity as to how much they're entitled to. Even after they concede coverage, there's still fights about that. Business interruption is just a loss of income. Contingent business interruption are things like you lost suppliers, arguably lost customers because they were staying at home under government order. Extra expense coverage is what it takes to get you through the period of restoration back up and running. Civil authority is a type of coverage. In other words, the government shuts you down. That seems to have happened to a lot of us, right? (laughs) But sometimes they say civil authority that arises out of a covered cause of loss. And they say, well, the covered cause of loss requires direct physical damage and you didn't suffer any, you were just shut down. But usually civil authority says, if that loss occurs within your area, you would have coverage so long as you could get coverage for that under your policy. So there are ways to invoke civil authority coverage. I don't know how these are going to play out and where we're going to be, but it looks, for example, that based on some new studies, which have not been peer reviewed, they're saying a lot more people had coronavirus than the number they're putting on the TV screen, that a lot of people have it, but don't have symptoms. And so the numbers are much greater, but the people with symptoms can also be passing it. So it's possible that if a court said you have to come up with some evidence, statistically, the odds are probably most facilities did have somebody with the coronavirus, whether they actually spread anything or not is unclear. But if that would count as damage in that jurisdiction, you could go in. Law and ordinance is a lot like civil authority. You know, there's a lot of local governments have entered ordinances not to operate in many cases before the state acted. Same thing, you get the coverage. Uh, Notice a lot of those local authorities did say because of the risk of physical damage is one of the reasons we're doing this. Ingress, egress means people can't get to you. So like, for example, if you're on a block and one of the buildings collapses and they shut the block off for a couple of weeks while they make the situation safe, ingress, egress is there. Extended time is very important because it basically will take your business interruption coverage give you more time, more time and extra expense. A lot of people for business interruption may have 30 to 90 days. Extended time sometimes gives you a year or more of coverage. So that's really good. Just a clarification there, uh, and then we'll, we'll cruise on to the next slide. But so you're saying that, you know, it is in a lot of these business interruption cases, there might be a cap or a policy limit on the number of days between 30 or 90 days. So for example, if coronavirus impacted my business for a period of six months, my policy may only say that I can claim it for 30 days? Yes, but there may be other ways to get more coverage under the policy, depending on some of the other terms. But Mm -hmm. it will say that's a cap on what is in the category of business interruption. I would say 95% of the people who have bought the restaurant endorsement have also bought extended business income. At least that's what I'm seeing. So I think that's helpful to people. Yeah, that's great. We got about maybe five more minutes. I don't know. I'm a must be a meathead, but I can't see any any of the questions come in. But until I stop sharing the screen, so so maybe if you know you want to maybe take a few more minutes and summarize here, and and then I'll try to come off of the presentation and see if anyone's asking any questions. You know. So what do you do from here? If somebody's told you you don't have coverage, you may want to re-examine it. 
have somebody who's got experience and expertise in the field look at it. As Rick said, I'm happy to read, me or one of my partners will read everybody's policy on a free and confidential basis and tell you what we think. And then, you know, you have nothing to lose with that. And I think you may be pointed to some things that you hadn't seen earlier. Best result is you've got the right endorsements, the right coverage, and there's an interest in settlement or negotiations with the other side. You know, a mistake I think a lot of people make in the insurance sector is that they are reactive. They wait to see what the insurer either says about coverage and then says about what their loss is. I say you should negotiate proactively like you would in every other aspect of your business life. And that means you come in, you've got an outline as to why legally there's coverage and you have the most robust set of covered losses possible. And you say, here, this is my proof of loss. Let's go. And then they have an obligation, a good faith obligation to go through that very carefully. And so if you negotiate proactively, I think you usually end up at a better spot than if you wait for their low number and then you start reacting. Be prepared to move quickly, get your recovery and move on. In many cases, they'll agree that you're entitled to some smaller amounts like one million and other times and you may have to litigate the next nine million to get the full 10 that you think you're entitled to. Again, it depends on your, your specific policy language, your specific insurer's language, your state, your statutes, and what's going on in your state and what has gone on in your state before. Play offense, not defense. Review your policy with, with an expert. And likelihood of success, hard to tell without looking at the policy. How long will this take? Usually within 30 days, you can find out if they want to negotiate. And then you, you try to get on a fast track for a declaratory judgment if able. And I see a lot of opportunity out there. Uh, I've talked to so many people who haven't even thought to look at their policies or people who didn't bother to look at their policies just because the broker said there wasn't coverage, you know? I mean, it's a waste, I think. Wow, well, he, we got like 10 questions here and I don't even know where to, where to start here. Here's one, are you familiar with the PA case that recently came out with regards to business interruption? Yeah, Pennsylvania had a good decision from the Supreme Court. As I said earlier, that was more about the governor's authority, but the way they talked about the incident as not being really a virus issue at all, but being a national emergency to save lives was very, very potent for people with Pennsylvania properties. Huh. Very cool. I have a couple of those. You know, so yeah. I'm pretty happy about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. I know you got some, don't you have some connection with the University of Pennsylvania somehow? I think I've heard, but nice place. If we do end up suing our insurance company, do we risk them dropping us from coverage and or them jacking up our rates going forward to compensate for the loss of, or the claim? Comment on that. Oh, most state insurance commissioners have laws. They can't retaliate. So that's absolutely going to mess them up. I've really never had anybody come back. And they have to do their rates based on actuarial numbers, not the fact that they don't like you. Okay. There's a number of these, so you maybe give them 30 second answer if you can. What about, what about ordinance and law coverage? If we own buffets, which we do, and the government makes our business model illegal by decree or law, can we make use of ordinance and law coverage? I don't know all the facts, but yes, so long as most law and ordinance coverages have exclusions. Like if they tell you to tear down an old decrepit building, that's not covered. But as, as I understood the hypothetical, possibly yes. 
How about this one? Can you offer an opinion if things may be different for those businesses that are within a host venue, like a mall, college campus, et cetera, where the host venue is closed, therefore eliminating access to the business? Is this splitting hairs? And then the, this gentleman says, my policy covers loss of access to our locations, but it has virus exclusions. Okay, so uh, I've reviewed policies and we have clients who both own the mall and then people who are in the mall. and. I didn't know this before, but apparently some landlords require in a mall setting like that, or maybe a food court setting in a university, require you to have business interruption insurance. I didn't know that, but a lot of people said, oh, it's in my lease, I have to have it. Virus exclusion is going to be hard. Those are going to be tough. But as I said earlier, I want to know the whole package, because if you do have the restaurant endorsement or the enhanced restaurant coverage or one of those names that they use for it, there may be a very good reason to argue that the virus exclusion doesn't trump that. Like, why would they sell you enhanced coverage if, in fact, it wasn't enhanced, you know? And that's and the courts will be grappling with that. It, I would say it's an ambiguity and it's got to be construed in favor of coverage. I'd say a few more things, but, you know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, here's one. Let's see. We Will we see insurance policy changes once we get past the virus? Should we see a second round of the virus? that will protect our business, one that uh, is affordable. Yes, I think that industry, not this year because of the optics, but next year, we'll go into state insurance commissioners and come up with a pandemic exclusion and try to get it put onto policies. That's their track record. Whenever there's a loss, they figure out ways to get out of it. So the answer would be no. The answer would be no then, right? Insurance companies are going to try to take that, make that an exclusion, a clear exclusion in a policy so that if there ever was another pandemic or return of a pandemic, they don't have to pay a thing, right? Correct. That's but, but if we go through a period now where they open everything up again, and then there's a second wave, like in November, I think there's a good argument that that's a second occurrence under your policy, so then you could recover twice consistent with the overall aggregate limits of the policy. But yeah, I, I mean, I think that, you know, we're entering a, the phase of restoration. So I would think a new outburst and a new set of closures or a return to very restricted openings, like 25% of your tables uh, can be filled, that that could be called a second occurrence. Hmm. Tell us again what a restaurant endorsement means for someone like you know, a businessman who, who who may not fully understand what a restaurant endorsement is, like okay. like myself prior to talking with you, honestly. <laughs> I mean, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, you get a PDF of your policy, and there a lot of restaurants. I've been saying restaurant endorsements, but honestly, there are lots of different names. Generally, it's restaurant enhancement or restaurant endorsement or expanded restaurant coverage. Labels like that, depending on the company, as you mentioned earlier, there's also, you know, one was called reputational. And that was, you know, it doesn't really matter what the title is. It's the words that matter, mm -hmm. which is why don't just look at your deck page. You can ask the broker for a PDF of your whole policy. And if you've got nothing better to do, you can flip through all 300 pages of it and see if this kind of restaurant, enhanced restaurant coverage is there, as well as some extended time limits, which seems to be the norm in your industry. But if not, I'll look at it. So it just basically gives more detail. Like you have this general policy that could be a policy that could be sold to any business. And if it has a restaurant endorsement, it, it pertains to 
it just has further definition language and clarifications to the actual restaurant business itself right yeah, maybe, it adds maybe coverage like and it adds some benefits you know like employee theft type issues I yeah. all of, think about all of the concerns that a restaurant has there's usually something in there that addresses it but for my purposes in this disaster i just am looking on looking at that one part of it the food contamination or communicable disease coverage but it's a bundle of benefits and Usually if you're in the business, I'm pretty sure the broker put it in front of you at some point. Yeah, okay, a couple others. They got like four others. Let's see if we can get through them here. I want to be respectful of people's time. Please uh, address rent loss insurance issues due to a government action to close. In this case, a regional cinema company cannot operate and therefore cannot meet its rent obligation. Is this the cinema company or the uh, mall owner asking? You guess as good as mine. I'd say the same. Uh, I'm guessing, I would guess it's the mall owner uh, (laughs) who would be concerned. And I've seen language that would cover the loss of rent. I have a building with a tenant and um, I just said in March, okay, don't worry about this month. Okay. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, but under the policy, you know, is it a gift? (laughs) Were you supposed to ask for it? But yeah, those are good policies mostly. And the math is pretty straightforward. But again, you'd have to look at the specific language and there might be some follow-up questions there. Yeah, here's an interesting one. Let's say, you know, because this pertains to our M&A business, right? Let's say I want to sell my business and in this particular, you know, this guy had a value here. Let's just say my business, easy math. Let's say it was worth 10 million and, and, and I had it for sale for 10 million. And now since this thing, it's worth 5 million. Can he claim the difference? Is there any sort of a claim there about the value of his business dropping? When you get into the realm of huge money, large medical centers, universities and all, they usually have customized policies. And I have seen language in a manuscript policy like that. But the, the policies that, that most of the people on this call have would not cover loss of value of the business. But, but from the M&A point of view, okay, you're selling a business at 5 million, you know, you got up to another 6 million in losses from just loss of business income. How do you price that? I mean, it's it's not a sure thing. It's a delayed money. But, you know, I've seen a lot of cases where people have sold businesses with great claims that we've gotten to represent them on. And it's like a windfall for the buyer. So that's going to have to be, I think, factored into a lot of this. So maybe let's say you've got only three million in probable insurance coverage. Do you sell your business for five or eight or seven? Interesting. Uh-huh. Interesting. Interesting. I, I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then the question becomes whether or not the insurance is transferable to the buyer. Right. Um, right. You know, and yeah. I'm sure in almost every case it's not, I've seen these stupid policies enough to know that. So, but that's, no, that's interesting. really interesting. I think we got time for maybe a couple more. I mean, you know, we've, we've gotten, um, you know, we don't just do, you know, unbridled doesn't just do work in the fr- in the restaurant space. Franchising is a, you know, just in general, whether it be fitness franchising, you know, healthcare, beauty care, car care, whatever it might be. So there's a couple of non-restaurant franchising questions. It's I own restaurants, but also 40 gyms. I have business interruption with no virus exclusion in my policy. If I come to an agreement with my insurer, say next week, then I reopen in a month and get hit by a virus again in September, will I be able to get a second payout? I think you kind of have said it is possible, right? It's possible. I have to look at the language of the policy before I, you know, I'm not offering legal advice, but I, I believe it, it is possible. We've looked at gyms. Gyms have good policies. I, I haven't seen a customized thing like in the restaurant industry, but uh, yeah. 
Yeah. Last well, thing the is thing, the important thing to remember mm -hmm. is very often when you get down to negotiating a policy, they'll say, all right, you know, you got to give up all your rights on the, you know, I'll pay you. You want say 4 million, they're offering you 3 million. They say, look, I'll go to three and a half million, but you got to give up the policy any further coverage under the policy. Mm -hmm. Generally I advise against that, but it's fact specific, you know, but that little push will come in at the end from the other side, generally. I think the last question that we'll just say is, you know, it, it, the question is, should I, should I do this ASAP or should I wait for some reason? And I think you've been kind of consistently saying throughout that do it now, look at your policy now, review your policy now and do it, do it now. A lot of, a lot of these things have to be adjudicated or have to be submitted within 30 days. Right. So the time seems to be of the essence. Don't sit on your hands and wait to be part of a class action lawsuit that may take two or three years to come to a conclusion. I'm very thankful, Alan, for your, for your time. Uh, you're, you're, you're really a charming uh, man and uh, got some great information here. I, I put the screen back up here for everyone to see both of our contact information. Presumably everyone who's on this call has mine, but if for some reason you don't get Alan's contact information, you can always email me and we'll make sure to, to reach out and get, and get you in touch with Alan. These are just some disclosures. He's an attorney. I'm not, but neither of us are giving you legal advice. This is just informational at this point. So please take it as such. Thank you for joining. And please, again, upcoming webinar the 19th with MMB. We're going to be talking about PPP loan forgiveness, all the technicalities behind that. And on June the 2nd, we're going to have John Hamburger, Franchise Times, to talk about the lending market post-COVID-19. Thank you for joining and being a part of this. And thank you, Alan, for all, all you've done. Really appreciate it. Much appreciated. Thank you. Best of luck to you and everybody else. All right. Awesome. Take care. Thanks so much for entering the Boiler Room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes podcasts, videos, white papers, webinars, and a list of our M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital LLC give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom. Mm -hmm.